This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Let us pray. Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives for the glory of your great name. Amen. Please do be seated. And uh, just in honour of Father's Day, um, a dad joke. What will Prince Harry's wife say every time she walks into Buckingham Palace? Hello, it's me again. (laughs) That was a better response than I thought I would get. (laughs) That's completely irrelevant to everything that follows. Today is, in fact, the second in our series entitled Truly Blessed. And in this series, I want to change your mind about the relationship to the things you have and even your relationship to yourself and everything you are. And we heard the reading from Matthew chapter 25, and that's where I'd like you to turn or stay if you're already there. And that was on page 807 from Matthew 25, a story about investing. And it might have pricked up the ears of some of you who are in the investment game. It's one of Jesus' most famous parables. This, the parable of the talents. And it's actually this story that is the way we took the word talent, which which used to be a measurement of the weight of silver or gold, and we now make it to mean, we, we, we use it in English as an ability or a gift that you have. I'm a very talented musician or whatever it might be. Now, Jesus' parables are always a puzzle, but this one seems more of a parable, uh, more of a puzzle than most. And I know I've wrestled with it all week. It's the story of a man with an eye-wateringly large fortune. The original audience would have been agog with the mention of such large figures. Just to give you an idea, a talent was worth 6,000 denarii. One denarius was about a day's wages for a labourer. So one talent was something like 15 years of regular income. It's a big sum. We're talking about several million dollars in our terms when we hear sums like five talents. Now in those days, grand households run by a patriarch were the closest you'd get to your multinational corporation like a Google or a Facebook or an Apple. These were big economic units. And so you've got this master, very wealthy, goes away and entrusts his fortune, part of it at least, into the hands of three of his slaves. Do you notice that he doesn't do it equally, does he? He does it according, each according to his ability. So the first one comes in and we imagine that the first one's dressed in an immaculate three-piece suit. Um, he's got a great CV. He arrives right on time, maybe even five minutes early. Um, he's got Manicured, uh, you know, he's got his fingernails are done. This guy is fantastic. He's obviously impressive. The second one, well, the second one's a bit middle management, to be honest. And he comes in, he gets two talents. But the third one, well, you know, the third one probably turns up, you know, maybe 10 minutes late. He's got his shirt hanging out. And he ambles into the office and doesn't really look him in the eye. And well, he gets, he gets one talent. And what happens? Well, the first two slaves, they manage 
to trade with their master's money and to double it through their training as trading through as time goes by. The third one, though, what happens to him? Well, he goes and buries the talent in the ground, and really that's where it ends. And so when the master comes back after being away for quite a stretch, the first two slaves are given a pat on the back by the master. Well, it's actually more than a pat on the back. They are welcomed into his joy. A really interesting phrase, isn't it? They, they are trusted with much and welcomed into a share of the master's joy. Now notice that the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy, they get the same reward even though they had different amounts to work with. But what about the last guy? Well, that's going to be an awkward interview, isn't it? And he comes in and he's got a hangdog look and he, he comes very hesitantly into the room where the master is and he gets a volley from the master. He's condemned for doing nothing but burying his talent in the ground. And as a result, he, he doesn't share in the master's joy. He's banished from the master's house. Well, here's the puzzle of this parable. Jesus seems to endorse ruthless business practices, really. The practice of charging excessive interest, which was forbidden in the Old Testament, and then also the dog-eat-dog view that the rich will get richer and the poor will deservedly lose even what they have. And even worse than that, in the parable, the master who we, we suspect stands for God seems to be an absentee landlord who goes away on holidays and seems to be only caring about maximizing his profits. He seems ruthless and stony-hearted. But at least that's what the last slave says, isn't it? You know, you're, you're, you're a hard-hearted man. You're tough. Is this what Jesus wants us to think of God as like? Like the wily and exploitative rich? Because... On one reading, he seems to act like it. This seems to be Jesus with a great big cigar, perhaps, you know, like some kind of tycoon, the Gordon Gecko version of Jesus. He seems an all-too-familiar figure from our world, the rich corporation that avoids paying tax, or the billion-dollar franchise that swallows the small business, the ruthless CEO who will do anything to get to the top. So is this then a kind of uber-capitalist Jesus? telling us that God helps those who help themselves, especially when they help themselves to stuff that belongs to other people. But surely, surely that can't be right. It just doesn't fit with what Jesus teaches, does it? Some scholars have read this parable and thought, well, actually, let's flip it on its head. Actually, there's a hidden message in here, and the real hero of the parable is the third guy, who is a whistleblower. So if the first reading of the parable is the capitalist version, this is the socialist version, right? The third guy refuses to play the corrupt game that his master sets up for him and exposes it in verse 24. He says, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, so I was afraid. And that's a bit of big accusation, isn't it? That's uh, really saying that the master is not actually rich because of his honest work, but because he got his wealth through exploitation and naked theft. But that way of seeing it doesn't seem to work either, because this parable fits in with a series of other parables in which being ready, being not ready, is condemned, not waiting well. 
The ten bridesmaids who aren't ready and the goats who are judged for ignoring Jesus in the poor and the needy in the parable of the sheep and the goats. So what are we to do with this? What is Jesus trying to tell us here in this puzzle of a parable? Well, the first thing we have to do is to understand what the talents mean. Now, they don't mean literally money. This is not an economics lesson. And they can't be reduced either to to our talents. Some people have read it as being, uh, well, this is referring to our talents like playing the piano or doing accounting or juggling or whatever it is that you've been gifted with. Now, how would Jesus' original Jewish readers have heard this? Well, they immediately would have recognized it as a story about God, the God of Israel. And what had God entrusted them with? Well, think back to their history. He had saved them. He had brought them out of Egypt and he had set them in his land, given them a land, and he had given them his his law, which was life itself for the people of Israel. They talked about it as being sweeter than the honeycomb, the light unto their feet and the lamp unto unto their path. Now, things had gone pretty poorly in Israel's history, to be honest, and they'd been exiled from their home and their relationship with God was under a really big question mark. And the prophets had said, well, what's going to happen now is that God is going to return to fix things up. Because Israel had been wondering throughout this period, where was God and what's God going to do to keep his own promises to us? And the prophets had then said, well, he's going to come in the form of a Messiah, of his anointed one. And so the people of Israel were expecting a master to return. They were expecting God to show up. And what were they to do in the meantime? What were they going to do? Well, they had to recognize that God had blessed them. He had given them all the material wealth that they had. He had given them his word as a path to a gracious life in his land. And he had given them a promise that he would one day return, that there would be an extraordinary blessing of homecoming with his people. In other words... They were promised his joy, that he would share his life with them. But there were those people in Israel, the Pharisees, who were clearly afraid, who were clearly afraid that if they stuffed up even a little bit, then the whole thing might be off. And so they put all of this that they'd received from God into a box under lock and key. It had to be preserved at all costs, preserved and not used, not risked. And so you even had them cutting up the herbs in their garden to make sure that they gave 10% of them, to make sure that they had really fulfilled every letter of the law, even though they'd missed the beating heart of it. Now, I've got some herbs out the back, some rosemary, some thyme, some basil and some mint. I can't imagine going out there, cutting it all up, weighing it on a very delicate scales, and then giving about 0.7 grams of it to the poor. And that's what they did. The really bad thing about it was that they misunderstood the beating heart of God. That's the real punch of this parable. This is where it hits us between the eyes, because the third guy, did you notice, has a totally different view of who God is. The first two slaves knew something about the master that the third one seems blind to. 
They know something about his gifts. They take them and they use them. They take them and they, they're responsible with them. They enjoy them. They press them into use. They understand that the gift of the talents is an extraordinary opportunity. They get that the master wants them to enter into his joy. They get that the master is generous. They know that everything they have comes from his hand and that they, what they have they've got on loan from him. And so they go out and they do what he wants done. They, they do his work in the world. They do the master's bidding. But the third guy, he's filled with fear, isn't he? He's afraid of the master. He just doesn't want to lose that one talent. So he hides it. And when the master returns, he says, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed. And what does he say? I was afraid. He doesn't think the master is generous. But the opposite. He thinks he's harsh and greedy and a thief to boot. He doesn't understand the gracious heart of the master at all. He's unable to see the blessing and to receive the promise and to know the hope. And you know, the, the master says to him, it, it's a curious phrase, he says, oh, so you thought, did you, that I was this? I don't think he's agreeing with that verdict at all. But this is what excludes him from the kingdom. He cannot see the generous heart of his master. God is not a stingy, mean-hearted, graceless God. God is deeply generous. The God we come here to worship is expansive in his blessing. He has warehouse after warehouse of grace to pour out on you. He wants more than nothing than to entrust you with his things. What does this mean for you and me? Well, I said that this isn't a parable that tells us about economics so much as it tells us about God. It, but it certainly helps us with the things that God gives us. It tells you and I that everything you have doesn't belong to you, but comes from a generous God. And it tells you that what he wants, what you have, he wants you to use for growing the kingdom. So everything you have, including life itself, comes from the generous heart of God. And if you are a Christian, you know this, and you know this in a double way, because you know that you have everything in the creation from God. But you know that despite your failures, you have in Christ everything in the new creation as well. You have in him peace and hope and new life. You are doubly blessed. Now, God gives us these things in different measure. He gives us abilities and possessions and capacities to do things and relationships in, in different amounts. We are not all and do not all have the same things from his hand. But when we put his property to work... We are rewarded the same. The guy with five and the guy with two get the same reward, remember. And, and the reward is to be entrusted with more of the master's things and to have the master, to be with him, to enter into his joy. 
But notice that what the master gives us is still his. The talents that belong to the slaves in the parable, they know that it still belongs to the master. They still belong to it's still God's property, whatever he loans us. Now think about for a moment what God has blessed you with in your life, whether that be your money or your abilities or your education or your body, or whatever advantages and blessings that you have. You have your time, your talent, and your treasure on loan from God. They are his, not yours. You have been entrusted with them. And this will take a while to sink in. It will take a while to sink in because that's not how we think instinctively, is it? We think that what we have, we've earned and it belongs to us and it makes us and identifies us. In fact, it's we, we attach to those things that we have. We, we look at the things we have and we, we remember the hard work that it took to get them. It's very deeply ingrained in us. And as we think about it, we'll realise that what we have comes from the hand of God. Uh, Harvard professor Michael Sandel is a terrific uh, lecturer. You can get his lectures on, on YouTube. He does these first-year uh, sort of morality uh, law lectures that he does, law and, law and ethics lectures. And he's got this experiment where he says, this is Harvard, one of the top five universities in the world, right? And uh, so there are people there, and you can imagine it's nerd central at Harvard, right? It's nerd central. In this first-year lecture, there might be a 1,000 kids there, and he says, he says to them, okay, how many of you believe you deserve to be here? And they, you know, they all put their hand up. They, they remember doing the work. They got them there. Then he says to them, how many of you are eldest children? He does it year after year. And he says, usually it's more than 75% of people stick their hand up at that point. And he, he says to them, did you choose to be an eldest child? What happened to all those youngest children? Where are they? If you got here by your work, then why is this the case? I think it's a great moment of revelation. It's the sort of thing we need to realize as well. What we have, we have from the hand of God, but we are often blind to see it. We're blind to see that what we have is a gift alone from him. What you have, you have been loaned by your heavenly father, your time, your talents, and your treasure. And you've been entrusted. This is the second thing. You have it from the hand of God on loan, but you've been entrusted with these things to make use of them for the sake of the master, for growing his kingdom. You've been entrusted with these things for a purpose, for his purpose. You've been given your time and your talents and your treasure to do what God wants done in the world, to do what God wants done. He's called you into his kingdom and given you the responsibility of using, your, using his things that you are responsible for wisely to extend his kingdom. God wants people everywhere to know his justice and his mercy in Jesus. God wants human beings everywhere to recognize him to worship him. His heart is for people to know him, to share his joy. So what are you going to do? What's going to be your response?
as an example of someone who is doing this, I think of our very own Sophia Cameron, who's in Nepal. She's a member of this church. She attended services here, and she evaluated what she had. Well, she was a, a teacher at one of our local uh, private schools. She had education. She had a talent to teach, and she had the freedom of her singleness. She evaluated those things and decided that the best way to invest what God has entrusted her with is to train teachers and to speak of Jesus Christ in the land of Nepal, where things most certainly are not as cushy as they are for us here, where life is certainly not easy. But she believes that's what God would have her do with her time, her treasure, her talents. And I also see amazing examples of this among us here. People who give their expertise to make St. Mark's tick. People who lead connect groups with all the hospitality that's involved there and the effort of getting that together. People who visit the sick and the lonely. People who give of their time to teach our children. On a Sunday morning, when most of Australia is eating smashed avocado, at least the ones in the inner city, they're teaching children. Or those who come on a Sunday afternoon to, to teach the youth People who give extremely generously to support the ministry that we do so that we can extend God's kingdom here in the eastern suburbs. But the number of ways of responding to this message is massive because we've all got different opportunities. We've all been given different things. However, if I'm to think of us collectively at St. Mark's, I think we should start to see that together we've been given enormous opportunities. The master has entrusted us with a great deal in terms of time and treasure and talents. This is an extraordinarily blessed community of people by the grace of God and capable of being a massive blessing to others. With what we have been loaned, we have an extraordinary opportunity and an extraordinary responsibility to extend God's kingdom, to do what God would have done in his world, to do what the master would have done with his talents. And so what are we doing with what we've been given? What are we going to do with the things that are his so that we can share in his joy? I invite you to pray about this and to talk together about this. How is it that we're going to use what God has given us for his glory? Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.